Kids, you did an awesome job with your videos. Thank you so much for that. Um, I've got a little mission for you right now. You ready for this? You are going to find the Bible passage this morning. And I want to encourage you kids, sit and listen through the sermon. It's a great skill to learn. And uh, you won't regret that you do this later on in life. You'll learn how to sit down. You'll learn a lot about the Bible. So, I'm going to say, ready, set, go. I'm going to tell us where we're going in the Bible, and you're going to try to beat me. You ready for this? We're going to be looking up Luke chapter 8, verse 22. Now, don't get ahead of me. Wait until I say go. Ready, set, go. All right, here we go. I flipped a little too far, but I'm getting there pretty quickly. Are you close? Are you getting there? Let's see if I can get there. I got it. Luke chapter eight, verse 22. Now, if I beat you, I just want to encourage you. I've been flipping to Luke a lot in the Bible. And so I was able to get there pretty quickly. Now, I'm going to have a conversation with your parents, but I hope that you listen in on the sermon through the entire time. So the discomfort you are feeling, everyone, Right now in this moment is grief. That was the title of an article put out by the Harvard Business Review. It was an interview between uh, Scott Baranato with grief expert David Kessler. Now, Kessler explains why we feel the way we feel. He says, we feel that the world has changed and it has. We, we know it's temporary but it doesn't feel that way. And we realize that things will be different just as going to airports forever has been different since 9-11. The loss of normalcy, the fear of economic toil, the loss of connection, this is hitting us and we're grieving collectively. We're not used to this kind of collective grief in the air. And I've got to tell you, I think that Kessler is spot on. You know, as we go through this time together, I've been experiencing things that probably are normal to many of us. You wake up in the middle of the night, your thoughts start wandering. You're asking yourself the question, how bad is this going to get? Kessler identifies this as anticipatory grief. He says, anticipatory grief is more broadly imagined futures. There is a storm coming. There's something bad out there. And this breaks our sense of safety and our, our feeling of loss. Now, if you know anything about grief, you know that there are stages involved with grief. And maybe you've experienced some of these. Uh, stage one is denial. And, and that was back in January when we were really saying, oh, is this really going to affect us? Stage two is anger. Uh, we said, I can't believe that I have to stay at home. Stage three is bargaining. Fine. I'll social distance, but only for two weeks. Stage four is sadness. This is never going to end, is it? And stage five is where you're starting to get beyond the grief into acceptance. This has happened and there's going to be a new normal. Now, I want to tell you that the Bible 
And faith is so important because it helps us to move beyond stage five when it comes to these feelings. Think about stage five. Stage five says, okay, I accept this. The world's not the way it should be. I guess I just need to live with that. But is that really the way you want to live? Just accepting it, just dealing with it? No, I, I want to move beyond that to a stage six. And the Bible, the scriptures provide a stage six for us. And when you have faith, faith produces in you the real healing of hope. Hope is stage six. Acceptance says this is the way things are and they will never be the same again. Hope says, yes, but I look to the God who promises to make all things right and all things includes your fears, your anxieties, your stress, and yes, even this grief. So as we look at Luke this morning in the Bible, we're going to see that hope rests exclusively in one person, and that is Jesus. We pick up with the story of a storm, and our first point is asking the question, who is Jesus. So let's look at Luke chapter 8, verse 22 through 23. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and they also sailed. uh, And as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. Now, Jesus' disciples, particularly the core Peter, James, and John, are experienced fishermen. They have come from generational fishermen. So their fathers, 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 fathers have been passing this along. They know that Sea of Galilee, that five-mile-wide, 13-mile-long sea like the back of their hand. And they also know that when a storm whips up like this on this sea, it is dangerous. Try to appreciate the situation. Think to a time when you've been in a terrible storm. Um, Here in Cape Cod, of course, we've experienced nor'easters, tropical storms, and some even have experienced hurricanes. I grew up in the Midwest in Illinois. I, I can remember those times when the tornado sirens would go blaring. You would step outside and you'd look up at the sky and it was this weird shade of shade of green and there was this eerie calm. And then you would go running down into your basement. Now, as a kid, I felt like a sense of safety because there was a roof over my head, even though that was probably a false sense of safety. But imagine being these disciples out in the elements with nothing to protect you. I mean, it's like a scene out of the Wizard of Oz. They're frantic. They're frenetic. They're fearful. And all the while, while this is happening, they look over and Jesus is snoring. Now, verse 24 describes their reaction. It says, they went and woke him and said, Master, Master, we're perishing. And and Mark adds on to that. He, He tells us, that they asked him, do you even care? Now get this. When we feel complete loss of control, we feel fear and bewilderment. We even wonder if Jesus cares. Let me ask you, does Jesus care? Is he sleeping in this scene because he's this cold, distant figure that's not really involved 
in the disciples moment of great need. Uh, Is he distant and cold in your situation right now? And the answer that we see in the scriptures is a resounding, no, he's not those things. This isn't about Jesus not caring. This is about a storm providing an object lesson to teach the disciples something about who Jesus is and what Jesus is capable of. And he proves this when he wakes up with a simple utterance. He turns a category five storm into a lazy day at the beach. And we know he is making a point because instead of saying, oh, sorry, guys, whoops, almost slept through that one when he wakes up, he asks them a question. Where is your faith? Now think about that. He's, he's asking them, why don't you trust me right now? Why don't you expect me to have control of the situation, even when this storm is involved. And I got to say, that's kind of an odd question. You know, if one of my friends came up to me and said, where is your faith when a storm erupted while we're out fishing on a boat? I would say, it's not in you. But here, the disciples actually feel puzzled because they've just seen what Jesus did. And let me paraphrase what they say. Who is this guy? Now, that's a good question. Who is Jesus? Take a minute and and think to yourself, who is Jesus to you? These disciples, they've been walking with Jesus for weeks, months, maybe in up to a year at this point. They've seen incredible things, yet they're still kind of working out the puzzle, aren't they? There's an enigma about Jesus to them. And, and it could be the same for you. Maybe you've grown up in church, you've heard Bible stories, or you've just heard people talking about Jesus, whatever it is, there is still in your mind, um, you can't quite pin down the answer to the question who he is. Who is he? Is he just another great teacher? Is he a prophet? Kevin DeYoung wrote an article where he says this, that not every Jesus is the real Jesus. And we have a tendency to make Jesus into the mold that feels comfortable to us. He gets a little satirical about the the various versions of Jesus that people have created He says, there's therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems, heal our past, tells us how valuable we are and to not be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual convos, drives a hybrid and goes to film festivals. There's open-minded Jesus who loves everyone no matter what, except for, of course, people who aren't as open-minded as he is. There's touchdown Jesus who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than of course the non-Christian athletes and determines the outcome of Super Bowls. And there's good example Jesus who shows you how to help people change the planet and be the best you that you can be. But here's the thing. When you put Jesus into the mold of your own making, that Jesus can never inspire real hope. Is, is good example Jesus or Starbucks Jesus enough right now? No. No, those aren't enough. 
The Jesus that Luke is showing us is the only Jesus that is enough in moments like this. We need the Jesus who commands even winds and waters and they obey him. Friends, Jesus's identity is everything when it comes to faith. If you want to reach that stage six hope, that hope only comes when you put your faith in a personal God who is able to save you. And if Jesus has the ability to calm the storm, then he's worthy of your faith. If he doesn't have that ability, then he's not worthy of your faith. But Luke is showing us this morning that Jesus is that personal God that we're looking for. In fact, he shows us this even more strongly as we move to the next part of the story. And we'll see this point. Jesus is outnumbered, but never outmatched. So they crossed the Sea of Galilee, the text tells us, and they enter into the region of the Gerasenes. Now, Luke is making a point. He's saying that they've gone into Gentile territory, meaning that Jesus didn't come just to save the Jews. He didn't just come for a certain people group. He came for people in all the different socioeconomic classes, different ethnicities. Jesus came into the world to save people from all over the world who would put their, their faith in him. So the story picks up with a demon possessed man, Luke eight twenty seven. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons from a long time. He had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. Now let's just pause and deal with what we've just looked at here. This man was possessed by demons. Now, some of the worldviews that are out there have no category for this. I'm imagining, though, that if you're listening in right now, you at least are open to the idea that God exists. And let's just kind of build a, a rational ladder here. If God exists, it's not that big of a step then to believe that demons exist or that there's a spiritual realm outside of the material realm that we see right here and now. Now, there are two extremes when it comes to Satan and demons. There's the one extreme where people see Satan and demons in everything. And in fact, they attribute all the the wrong and evil that they've done to them. They say things like the devil made me do it. And, you know, the Bible says, no, you made you do it. On the other extreme, There are those who just simply say they don't exist, but the Bible's picture of this realm is balanced. Demons are real. They can cause serious harm, but they're not responsible for everything bad that has happened in lot. In fact, there's a lot of us that is responsible when bad things happen. Now the interaction that we might experience if Satan is real, if demons are real, is described by Bible teachers as spiritual warfare. Here's the thing. Satan loves to destroy life. That's his purpose. That's his mission. So you may be experiencing something like that right now. He loves to 
capitalize upon our weaknesses. Uh, Maybe right now you're feeling a form of despair like you've never felt before, or maybe within your home there's been heated conflict and you're thinking to yourself, where is this coming from? Or, Or you've been tempted by things, whether it would be alcohol or lust or some other form of temptation. That's Satan working out his purpose in your life. He's trying to destroy your life. And if you're not convinced of that, look at how he treats this man in the story. You see, this man no longer has any concern for hygiene or safety or even common decency. Every basic instinct of humanity within him is now animal-like. Mark tells us in Mark 5.5 that he would take jagged rocks and cut into himself. I don't know exactly why. Maybe he was trying to drive out the evil spirits. Kent Hughes gives this powerful imagery of the man. This poor naked man was a mass of bleeding lacerations, scabs, infections, and scar tissue, living in a delirium of pain and masochistic displeasure. Just think about what it must have been like. I mean, does this guy have his lucid moments? Does he notice when he's walking down the street that mothers are pulling their children in closer? Does he realize that he is an outcast in every way, shape, and form? Of course he does. Why else is he running off to the tombs to hide with dead people? He is dehumanized, animalized, marginalized, and both frightening and fearful. And friends, this is as bad as it gets to be repulsive, unloved, unwelcomed, absolutely hopeless, and resigned to live this way for the rest of your life. Unless, of course, Jesus shows up. We pick up at verse 28, looking through verse 31. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion for many demons had entered him. Now, several commentators note that when Jesus says, what is your name? That he is actually speaking directly to the man, not to the demons. Now think about that. Think about the compassion of Christ for a moment. Here is the most pitiful human being that you can think of. And instead of recoiling, Jesus pauses. He looks into those distorted and disfigured eyes and he humanizes the man by asking him the question, what is your name? I mean, that is a truly gentle and compassionate question in a moment like this. A friend, if you've ever gotten to that place in your heart where you've said, does God really care about me? Could God ever really accept me if considering all of the things that I've done in my life, 
Think about this man. Think about this story and realize that no one is ever too far, too broken, too evil for Jesus to bring them back. Now you have to ask the question, okay, well, if Jesus desires to bring the guy back, is he able to bring the guy back? In a couple of the stories we've seen so far in Luke, and if you haven't followed along, you can go on our website and catch up with the story. Luke is a great book of the Bible. We've noticed that Jesus has casted out demons, but those have only ever been individual exorcisms. As he asks the man his name, the demons take over and they respond with the name. They call themselves Legion. Now, a legion in this time would cause them to think of a Roman legion, which had around 6,000 soldiers. Now, Luke's not saying to us that there were 6,000 demons in this man. He was simply telling us that he had a lot of demons in him and that Jesus in this moment is outnumbered. Here's a big truth about Jesus. Jesus can be outnumbered, but he will never be outmatched. Never. Look at verses 32 and 31. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the men and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Now, when you look at this story, there's not even the slightest hint of a contest. When, when demons stand against the Lord Jesus Christ, it's like rowboats with pea shooters coming out to take on a battleship. It doesn't matter if you have a thousand rowboats or a million rowboats, the battleship wins every time. And in the same way, Jesus wins every time in these kind of contests because Jesus has all authority. Again, I come back to the question, are you looking for hope? If you're looking for hope, you need to find your hope in the one who has all authority. There's all kinds of hopes that are peddled. But Jesus is the only one worthy of hope. He's the one who can calm the storm. He's the one who's never overmatched. He's the one who is compassionate. Like this demon-possessed man in Jesus, you can find real freedom, real acceptance, real hope. You want to talk about acceptance? Talk about the one who knows you at your worst moment and yet says, I accept you if you will follow me. Friends, that's incredible. That's the gospel. This upcoming week, we're going to be celebrating Easter and remembering the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he rose victorious to new life. And and by rising again from the dead, that Jesus has authenticated his power to conquer sin and death. And the Bible says that everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't you want that? Don't you want that kind of hope? What does that kind of hope look like? We move to our third uh, point and we see that Jesus provides 
hope for the overwhelmed. Look at verses 34 and 35. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. You see, biblical hope is a picture of this man's experience. Biblical hope is radical transformation. It's hope for the overwhelmed. This guy has no hope. He's the ultimate outcast. He's living with the dead. He's tormented. Yet, for him, real hope looks like sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. That's radical transformation. So biblical hope can meet you when you're feeling overwhelmed. Did you know that millions of people around the world, just like you, are asking new and deeper questions about God right now, today, this morning. Why? Because coronavirus is colliding with worldviews right now. They're asking the question, have I been looking at the world rightly? Have I been pursuing life that's worthwhile? Um, do I have something that's really substantive that gives me real hope in a moment like this of threats? And I have to ask you, and I don't mean this to be negative. I'm just trying to produce deeper questioning. How's your worldview working out right now? Is it providing you with hope? Well, how's the Bible different? Well, let me begin by showing you what biblical hope is not. Because there are a lot of people out there that would... Uh, peddle a false form of religious hope. You may have heard the story of that pastor from Florida who called his congregation together to gather and was arrested, breaking the social distancing orders. And I'll tell you, one of the things that was just disturbing about the message of that pastor on that Sunday was he was essentially saying to people, if you have enough faith, then God will keep you free from harm in all of this COVID-19 pandemic. He even goes so far in his message to say, and if you have enough faith, God will multiply your toilet paper. Toilet paper. I mean, seriously, what is the deal with toilet paper right now? Friends, that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is hope for radical change in this life and perfect change in the life to come. Right now, if you put your faith in Jesus, the Bible tells us that your heart will undergo a radical change. You will become the person that God's always destined you to be. And in addition to that, you will have the God of the universe with you in the midst of all of this. Beyond that, the perfect hope is yet to come. When Jesus returns and he makes all things new, Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away and yes, there will be an unlimited supply of toilet paper. But think beyond that. Think beyond the moment. Think beyond the panic. Think of a world where all things are made new. No more infighting. No more 
pain and disease. No more watching the people that we love and care about pass away from that that ultimate enemy called death. But all things made new. Well, I invite you, friend, again, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, the time is now. Not, not, the time is not wait and see till this pandemic passes and how do I feel then? The time is right now. God is slowing things down so that we will listen to him. Put your faith in Christ. Find that freedom. Indeed, the, the question that remains is, and this is our fourth point, how will you respond to Jesus' choice for hope? Because there's really just two choices when it comes to Jesus. We see this in the story. First, we see that you can choose to keep Jesus at a distance. That's what the people from the countryside do. Look at verses 36 and 37. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. Why? For they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat and returned. That to me is just staggering. Why? After hearing of what he did for this man, why ask him to leave? And, and there's a couple of different opinions as to why some think it might have been economic. 2,000 pigs represented a lot of money for people back then. Others think it was the fear. They were afraid that if he was that powerful, he would do something harmful to them. But I think that it involves something different. I think it involves their desire to continue to live their life the way that they wanted to live it. You know, if Jesus is this powerful, if he has this much authority, then he also has the right to tell me how to live my life. He might ask me to follow him. And for these people, as they considered their present life, they thought, I'd rather not make any of those changes. Now, I've been a pastor for 10 years And I've watched a lot of different people respond to Jesus in different ways. But I have to tell you, more often than not, when someone chooses to keep Jesus distant, this is the reason. They're believing that the life that they're living now is better than the life that Jesus is offering them. It's almost like that anticipatory grief that I described at the beginning that broadly imagined future where you think to yourself, it's going to be worse if I follow Jesus. But friend, talk to someone that's made the change. Talk to someone who has had their life radically changed by Jesus and, and let them tell you what they've experienced. In fact, that's what leads a lot of people to the second choice. We see that in the story of this formerly possessed man. He chose a second option and you can choose uh, too. You can choose to trust Jesus with your life. Look at verses 38 and 39. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home 
and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now, this is the the pinnacle of this story. Notice that this man wishes to follow Jesus, be close to Jesus. He wants to enter into this pack of disciples with Jesus, but Jesus gives him a greater mission. See, Jesus is not interested in localizing his mission, meaning that the mission can only go so far as his footprints. Jesus wants his mission to go all over the world, to every part of the world, through every person in the world. And his job, this man's job, is to tell people how much God did for him. And then he goes into the countryside and he tells people how much Jesus has done for him. Now, do not miss the point that is bold with an exclamation point on it that Luke is making here. He is not accidentally equating God and Jesus in this verse. The point is that Jesus is the God who's come to save us. This man knew it. And he wanted to tell everyone he knew about him. And you know what I love about this story? You, you, you don't hear any outcomes. You don't hear if a single person has trusted Jesus. The only thing we know is that this man had a powerful story to tell, and it is undeniable. Well, here's the deal. You have a story too. You do. Because we all come from different backgrounds and different places and, and different pasts. And yet we have one thing in common. Jesus has radically transformed our lives. He has. You might not think that that's a story worth telling. And you might make evangelism a lot more complicated than it needs to be. But here's the deal. Everyone has a story that's worth sharing. Because God's been involved in your life. God's worked in your life. Maybe there was a time when you needed to trust him more and you did and you leaned in. And God demonstrated himself faithful. Maybe you went through a period of grief or tragedy. Maybe you were incredibly broken and God brought you out of that. Maybe you saw his grace as he preserved you in difficult situations. That's your story. That story is worth telling. We're talking about worldviews here. And I've got to tell you, the only worldview that makes sense out of all the worldviews is the Jesus worldview. And people need to hear it. Because Jesus, the Jesus worldview works all the time. It works when things are good. It works when things are bad. So we have a great opportunity before us. Next Sunday will be Easter. And... I've been hearing that church leaders are projecting that this is going to be the most well-attended Easter in human history. Do you want to be a part of human history? I do. I want to be a part of the big moments. I want to be faithful in the big moments. And one of the ways that we can do this right now is we can invite our friends, our loved ones, our neighbors to listen in this Easter as the gospel is proclaimed. Share the story, share it on your social media page, text your friends, call your friends, invite them to listen. And then be like the man in this story. Follow up with that person and tell them your story. 
I want to give you an example of how to do that. This morning, two of our members have graciously offered to share their story, John and Jason Peterson. And as you listen into their story, just listen to the dramatic change that Jesus produced. Remember that he's done the same thing in your life. And if you don't know Jesus, ask yourself the question, if, if Jesus can do that for them, can he do that for me? And I want to tell you the answer to that question is yes. So let's go to their story. <laughs> 